Why so predictable? Let's get started. Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Fangio. Former world champion Jim Clark leapt into the lead. That's Clark's Lotus going like a bomb. And James Hunt is the world champion by just one single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen is champion of the world. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of F1 in Review 2023. I'm Tom Claiborne. We're back and I'm joined by Angus Gallagher and Tristan Fancourt. Today we look back at the Belgian Grand Prix where Max Verstappen won again, this time though from P6. Uh, it's his 8th win in a row, 10th of the season, and his teammate Sergio Perez returned to form and finished in P2. Now, the Ferraris of Charles Leclerc and Mercedes of Lewis Hamilton were the next best, but they were over half a minute away from the race leader. Now, this all means that Red Bull have won every single race, that's every single race, so far this season as we go into the summer break. Why do you think this season has been, or why do you think this season has been so predictable, and what feasibly can be done to change this when we return after our hiatus? Sprinklers on the track. Really? Yeah. In the in the great words of Bernie Eccleston, eh? Hey, it's not mm. sounding not sounding such a stupid idea now, is it? Really? It is a bit bizarre, isn't it? Because I feel like consistency become way too good in in Formula One and. Now that even the worst drivers have substantial talent and that the reliability of the cars is really good, they're constructed incredibly well and everything on the track now is pointing towards excellent safety, bar things like the sausage curbs and individual examples of of certain things that we may want to tweak, which we'll discuss later, especially in Spa. So we're now in a sport that, I guess, has provided us with the thing that many Puritans have have been crying out for for quite a long time. And that's excitement coming only from wheel-to-wheel racing. You know, we don't want any artificial changes um, being made to the sport. And what are we seeing? We're seeing a 25% drop-off in US viewership this year Mm. alone, and we're only halfway through the season. Ouch. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I know. I know. This comes as at the same time as um, I mean, it's been reported that um, the F1 TV and Formula One management are clamping down on like VPN usage for watching uh, F1, which is quite popular in Europe and other parts of the world as well. So there's, they've got this like double double hit. People are losing interest and they're also clamping down on the ways people can watch the sport as well. So I, I know I'm not I'm not actually a very good businessman, but uh, I I suspect limiting your audience isn't necessarily the best way in a spectator sport to make lots of money. But to be honest, I think that we ha- it's that double-edged sword, and I don't think there's anything going to happen, and nothing's really going to change until a couple more years. We we're going to have to wait until another team gets good enough to challenge for the top spot again, and. Unless we want to add in artificial things, for example, a reverse grid sprint would add, add some excitement, wouldn't it, on a special occasion? And mm-hmm. maybe we make tires fall off the wall a bit more, add in refueling again, or in the battery era in 2026, we could do something artificial with the batteries that might make it exciting. Until we add in anything like that, I think we will have to accept now that drivers are too talented, cars are becoming more and more indestructible which I, I think is always a good thing and we ha- are not racing under conditions that are uh, that lead to drama so wet races for example we we red flag delay starts much more than we used to so all these things mean that we're becoming more boring 
if and only if there is complete dominance in the track, which there is at the moment. So to be honest, Tom, I think the answer to your question is how do you make it more exciting? You make everyone else better because Red Bull are making it boring because they're just too good. Yeah, I'm at a loss of what to do, to be honest. It's um, it's a sport which is based on meritocracy, right? And we've had many times in the past Toto Wolf, to, um, for example, one person who said it, who said, um, well, it's a meritocracy and that's why I love the sport so much is because if you have the ultimate capacity to stretch your engineers and your your teams, the backs, then you can get a, an incredible car and reap the rewards of the... Uh, the hard work you've put in. The only problem is it means that that dominance is rewarded more often than not. And it's funny, isn't it, how in a sporting world where you often get close contests across many other sports, Formula One has consistently had periods of dominance. So we're going through one right now, having just lurched from uh, from another one, which was Mercedes for many years. Before that, Red Bull again. And before that, probably there was a couple of golden years where there was, it was very competitive grid, but then you had Ferrari were dominant for a good five to five or six years. Before that, McLaren. Uh, if you go back to the 80s and 90s, you had Williams and McLaren had various periods of, <coughs> of domination. It's a theme in the sport over the last 30 years. And... I guess the way to, to stop it is in the immediate future this season. You can't really. You've got one driver in Verstappen who is so supremely confident in his ability at the top of his game. And he also happens to have been paired with the fastest car in F1 history, arguably. I think we can probably say that at the moment based on the fact that this weekend finished half a minute ahead of anyone else. Even though he was probably cruising for half the race, having taken the lead. There's a stat that came uh, came out which was that on the on the lap that he over Verstappen overtook Perez for the lead lap seventeen, I believe, he was two point one seconds faster than Perez. That was despite spending the first sector in his in his slipstream and having to lift off slightly through on the route down to Eau Rouge because he was so far at the back of Perez. That shows really how ridiculous the margin is at the moment when Perez in that car is not even within two seconds of his teammate. You've just got a driver who's just on on the top of their game. And the the, the ways to stop it this season are ridiculous suggestions such as sprinklers on track, such as every t- just such as every time there's a Verstappen on pole, just go, right, we're gonna reverse the grid today, just because why not? You know? Um they should have something ir- they should have something. I remember seeing uh, there was a, a um, an American race, I think it was NASCAR maybe, a few about a decade ago, where they basically got the drivers to go up on stage, and they had like um, they had tires on a wall, and you had to sort of swivel the tire around, and whatever the number was on the back of the tire would be your grid position for the next the next day. Uh, maybe we, maybe we try that. Have have it all lined up in front of a crowd, swivel the tire around. Max Verstappen, oh, you've managed to somehow get first on the the draw. Oh well. Um, but yeah, he's yeah he's just in a period of domination. This guy isn't he? And the team is as well. I I see no no way there is zero way other than the the like sod's law at this point, which suggests that Red Bull won't win a race this year. Like they are. I, I and to be honest, there's no way in which Verstappen doesn't win a race this year. Like Perez ain't winning a race. The only like if Verstappen's car's healthy, he's sweeping the ball the rest of the season. You get the old qualifying session, such as on, well, uh, the sprint suit shootout on the Saturday where Piastri got so, so close to nicking first place from Verstappen. Because because otherwise, it's, I mean, even qualifying, you finished flipping eight tenths clear of Leclerc. It's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's it's like a crest of a wave, which he kind of started in the second half of last season. And it kind of started around Belgium, where he won from 14th on the grid. And we were like, oh my God, Like, how's he done that? That's an unbelievable achievement to do that. But he's just carried on that good momentum. And unless Verstappen has a has a stinker of a weekend, which admittedly can happen every once in a while, I think back to Singapore last year where he just he dropped the ball and came, he came seventh. Uh, he just had a bad day, he admitted it. But unless that happens, then no one else is winning a race this year because there's nothing you can do in the short term to... It would be criminal to sort of block off that meritocracy by saying, oh, we don't like this anymore. Like, we're going to stop him from winning. You just have to appreciate the moment, how good he is, I suppose, and 
how he literally cannot be step uh, cannot be stopped, and that the next ten races are going to be uh, quite the quite the ride for the rest of the grid. The only thing that I can think of to stop it in the shorter term is to go essentially. Okay, let's say Mercedes are winning the constructors by X amount of points. Therefore, your development time, what you're able to do to the car is frozen for, let's say, two, three weekends. Maybe that's a sort of natural check and balance to make sure that someone can be ahead. They can enjoy that to a point. But when the gap gets too far, they're almost curtailed to a point that allows, let's say, Ferrari or Red Bull or Alpine or Aston Martin to go and close the gap, maybe. Because we hoped that would happen with a penalty, didn't we? We said, oh, don't you worry. This penalty is a slow burner. It will come into fruition very, very shortly. Yet here we are with Red Bull having their biggest period of dominance arguably ever. But thoughts on that? Freezing development for a couple of weekends, maybe? I mean, they did that with Red Bull last year and they give them a massive fine. And look what's happened there. And so it's not really made much difference. It's uh, it's kind of made a mockery of that punishment, arguably, considering how, how far ahead of the field they are. It's not a bad shout. Something like something mid-season which is to do with competition and isn't completely ridiculous or out of the ordinary. Um, I'm literally I'm trying to rack my brains for other suggestions, but there isn't. I can't think of ways to sort of... Red Bull are unstoppable. Let's just finally admit it. We've always been thinking, like, well, maybe something can stop them. They are unstoppable. Verstappen is unstoppable. I don't know whether or not you will convince people that it's a good idea to add in any artificial constraints on development i think that's going to be a harder harder sell i agree that it's not a good thing when one team gets a massive engineering advantage but i think it's going to be difficult to to punish the excellent progress from people like red bull or mercedes or let's say you know it was was williams or whoever because it's a hard metric because what are you actually doing are you punishing those doing really well or are you you know giving a helping hand for those who perhaps hadn't invested in areas which they should have and I, I think part of the thing we accept with F1 is you get these periods of absolute domination now I was, I was actually talking to my father who, who watched the Formula 1 during 70s 80s and 90s you know that was his formative years I guess and he was saying that when it was Senna he used to complain about Senna's ultimate domination and McLaren when McLaren won 11 out of 12 races in a season how that was absolutely the you know frustrating and what a pain people saying the same thing well I'm not going to watch it because I know who's going to win it's just going to be McLaren winning again and now we look at it as the golden era the of of you know F1 at its maybe it's pinnacle would you say that that era but it's definitely looked at with rose-tinted spectacles so maybe in 20 years we'll look back at this and be like ah do you remember when McLaren Red Bull won 24 out of 23 races. Amazing. It's amazing that they won the extra one. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so I think, I don't know. I don't think that's ever going to pass. But it's funny you mentioned that, though, because I don't know if you've seen the uh, update from Spa in terms of the engine regulations for 2026. And, and what's been said there is something very similar. Basically, if an engine, I think they said 3% down on horsepower, but that might be slightly incorrect or might be not finalized. If an engine is down on horsepower, they will the, give special dimp- dispensation to that manufacturer to put in development to increase the power. Now, at the moment, at once you've locked in your power for your engine, that's it. You can't develop power. You can only develop its reliability. But now, that to, to counteract that, they're actually doing what you've suggested, Tom, and are saying, well, actually, if you are down on power, all right, then we'll, we'll allow you to, to develop it to get back up to par. So, which begs me, actually begs the question, what happens if you accidentally overdevelop it? Well, if, let's say Ferrari go, all right, we're down 3%, and then, oops, we're accidentally down, you know, developed, you know, 6%. Does that mean everyone else gets to catch up? And then, you know, could it push up? But, um... Yeah, so so maybe maybe I'm being pessimistic. Maybe that is actually the way that F1 is going. We will just simply hamper those at the front until the people at the back catch up. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, it's a conundrum, really, which I feel we'll probably talk about further when it comes to seasons to come until regulations change again, really, because let's not kid ourselves. We were going through a, a similar stale period, if you will, until the new regulations came in. So maybe 
a quicker or more ready regulation change or a more frequent one is the way to go in that aspect. But I suppose in terms of the Belgian Grand Prix in of itself, we can't not talk about the circuit when talking about the Grand Prix. And we talk about this because Spa is one that's always up for renewal, quite literally and also with the public vote as well in terms of how people feel about it. Now, in my view, this weekend it showed its strengths and weaknesses, vulnerabilities. You saw on Saturday when it came to the sprint, for example, very susceptible to rainfall and the negative connotations of that, i.e. a reduced sprint, which as we've spoken about with the sprint, a shorter sprint isn't a bad one necessarily. But then when it came to Sunday, yes, there was a period of Red Bull domination throughout. Ultimately, they were very much at the front, be that Perez or Verstappen. But you saw many overtaking opportunities, which saw drivers rise and fall throughout the pack. So once again, it's got a contract until 2024. Would you personally renew that contract? What changes are needed to keep it on the calendar, do you feel? It's tricky because... Uh, it's one of the tracks which needs changes probably because it's 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 not that it's severely outdated, but we've seen over the last few years the sort of the incidents that have happened and the the unfortunate fact that often with this kind of with this kind of thing it only brought to the attention or the limelight when something serious happens. So we saw that F three driver Delano Vanterhoff who was killed in that accident in uh, July about uh, when he basically there was a massive problem with visibility and it was it came from the 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 Rouge Radion area and it's just a part of the track which is dangerous and Spa has problems with its the visibility there the fact that as well it's a track where it's in the forest, so any mist or fog or drizzle stays quite low hanging, and as a result, you struggle to clear the track compared to somewhere like Silverstone, where it's surrounded by grandstands and buildings, and it's just down the the road from a village. It's it's and it's not so so rural. If you had rain there, it's much easier for the the rain to clear. I also think that as an argument for Spa can't do much to save its future because if we look past the issues with the track of which there are some the other issue is that until 2021 it was basically max verstappen's home race because they didn't have a dutch grand prix and also because he has belgian heritage i think his mum is belgian but now what do they have on the calendar they have a home race for him so they might say well what's the point of spa you know we've got these other issues with spa it's awfully convenient we can push it out the door because this man who's our most at the moment the most sellable asset the most the most talented driver has a home race already there so why would we need an extra home race so to speak um so as a result i think spa's future is looking yeah more and more precarious by the year it's on the calendar next year it's round 14 out of 24 sandwiched again in between the Hungaroring and Zanvoort on that much-changed calendar, which I'm sure we will speak about at some point later in the season. But, yeah, it's what can be done to save Spa? Not a whole load at the moment. I think it's, it's under threat, simple as, just because of circuit limitations. They have admittedly they've put in some work over the last couple of years to improve it, uh, for which they should be credited. But at the same time, it's getting towards the final countdown, isn't it, in terms of whether Spa stays on the calendar, which would be a great shame because it's such a good track and it's so popular with the drivers and it's it's a classic. It's one of the few in this modernised calendar with so much more uh, globe trotting. It's one. It's one of the, it's one from the traditional European heartland, which tick which ticks a box. It has great history and the drivers love it. But but yeah, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't fit the bill. Doesn't fit. Doesn't fit with the times. You could say. Well, I think, to be honest, it, Spa is one of the exceptions that proves the rule when it comes to safety. And I think there, if you add up the amount of hours that we've we've spoken about safety on this F one podcast, we could probably fill half a season of F one in review because it is at the forefront of of I think our minds, especially when we're talking about cars that go so fast uh, under. In- incredible pressures it any moment of mistake for a driver that's it it could be severely damaging to them and unfortunately not that long ago this this year we we 
yet again had another death in motorball. It wasn't Formula One, but there was another death. And that happened at Spa, which of course raises the flags again about whether or not it's fit for purpose. To be honest, I don't think any of us are in a situation where we can levy the risk because we're not driving single-seaters over there. And it's unfortunately a track that's beloved by many. It is my favourite track of the se- of the season. I love it. It is incredible. It brings absolute excitement. And also it does bring unche- you know, changing weather. And that paired with a track that is the longest of the season, seven and a bit kilometres, oh, brilliant, means that, it, you know, we, we know that on one bit of the track it can be raining, other bits of the track it can be bone dry, and that brings new levels of excitement. And what can we do to improve safety? I think the biggest thing at the moment and the biggest controversy is whether or not Eau Rouge is uh, fit for purpose. And I'm sure one of someone's going to be like, oh, it's not called Eau Rouge. Well, I'm going to call it that anyway. It's the bit that goes down and then up this long hill. And it's beautiful to watch the cars go up that quickly along the hill and I think the biggest problem I have at the moment is runoff the runoff is not fit for purpose and I think a simple change would fix that in the olden days what we used to do for runoff there is drop people into the Arden forest and the reason we did that is because when you went off the edge you went down a cliff and then you got hit you basically left the track there was no way to get back up because it was a drop off the sides now, I'm proposing instead of we drop people off the side and into a forest, which is incredibly dangerous, instead what we need is an inverted funnel shape capture, basically, on the runoff. <laughs> okay. the, the issue we got at the moment is cars can spring off the barriers and back onto the track, which is a blind summit at incredible speeds, 200 odd miles an hour. But if they designed the, the runoffs with the idea that if you go off there, you probably won't make it back onto the track, but you definitely won't die. I think we could solve many of the problems. So what I'm suggesting is we have an inverted funnel. You go off there, basically you're out of luck, you've screwed up, but you won't die. Instead, what you'll do is you'll basically hit a, a, a funnel of barriers and softer impacts that basically that, that slow you down and keep you going in that direction, slowing you down and, and not making you bounce back into the track. And that would... I think solve the problem we accept that the there is a lot of risk there and the drivers basically accept that if they mess up there they're going to you know not make it back onto the track and but they won't die and i think that's kind of the middle ground here but short of not going to spa i think the only way we can make it safe is by not allowing the cars to get back onto the track if they go off at eau rouge and out of control because currently that's the that's the biggest risk and that's partly why we had a death because he went off the track bounced back into it and got hit by another car so if you can eliminate that i think you can eliminate much more of the risk yeah i think it's a great point really because when we talk about the dangers of the belgian grand prix spa we're talking about that area and that area only and yes we've had a few hairy moments shall we say in formula (laughs) one where one or two drivers of past when they were different teammates weren't willing to give too much room in the run-up to Eau Rouge but uh, we talk about there being more reliable cars better drivers and the like well for me that's the reason why we shouldn't necessarily give up on the Belgian Grand Prix give up on a circuit that's been in the calendar since 20 sorry 1925 should I say holding its first Grand Prix there because I think that yes it's always one that should be up for renewal scrutiny accountability sure but giving up on it basically a traditional purpose-made European track which has defined the sport for years indeed the present and hopefully the future would be a wrong turn in my view it would be a negative step and I fear that there's some forces within Formula One in the hierarchy that would like to do away with this circuit, do away with the Belgian Grand Prix in its entirety and go elsewhere. So I can only hope that uh, some form of a sort of third way, indeed a compromise where safety is uh, adhered to properly, but we can still enjoy racing where racers say they like to go. I think that's the right way to go, really, because it's one of my favourite, if not my favourite as well. It's, it is one of the most challenging yet exhilarating circuits to watch, let alone drive, I imagine. Can you imagine what it's like to drive there? It would be an absolute dream, wouldn't it, to be able to <laughs> drive that circuit? Yes, no, I'd love to love... Do you think you could handle it? Oh, I'd love to have Eau Rouge on my morning commute. Or, uh, you <laughs> know, this is... <laughs> <go>. Imagine. 
Imagine. <laughs> yeah, but the hill start would be suck, right? If you were on traffic, oh. yeah. halfway up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't yeah. roll backwards, don't roll backwards. Crawling don't roll backwards. down that would be a sport in of itself, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's, yeah, it's a tricky one because how do you innovate a track which has... It doesn't have much room for manoeuvre. We talk as well about the old circuits. You talk about somewhere like Monza, for example, which has that uh, extra sort of oval section, but it has countryside around it which you can manoeuvre to, you know, alter the track. Monaco would be an example of one that doesn't have that room for manoeuvre because you have the streets, you drive the streets, and there's the only the, the odd change you can make, really. Silverstone, another one where you've got... You've got track, you've got lots of runoff, you've got lots of room, purpose-built racing circuit for, what, 90-plus years or whatever. But unfortunately, Spa falls into that that uh, that latter category. You, just, you don't have as much room for manoeuvre, and it's just... It's what makes it magical, right? But also, it's what could could hold it back going into the future. It's what could... Uh, so tracks have to modernise, and... That sometimes they do, like Hockenheim used to have this, used to be this, um, this, this track which was like a minute 45 for a lap. It used to be longer, almost as long as Spa. You used to drive through the forests and then it got asked to modify, turned itself into a bit more of a Mickey Mouse track. And then after that, they couldn't do much more. So for that and financial reasons, it went off the calendar. And it sounded like a similar, similar thing with Spa, to be honest. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's not looking good for their future, but you can't do much about it, sadly, and it's a, it's a sad predicament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think it's going to change. I think the thing that will actually happen is it will get struck off the F1 calendar simply because there is money to be made at other tracks. Yep. And I don't think safety is going to be the reason it leaves as well because of the other tracks that are on the on the calendar. The dangers of Azerbaijan, the dangers of Saudi Arabia, and those other fast tracks which have blind corners i mean saudi arabia is nuts remember the first race there has no runoff absolutely no runoff so there is other dangerous tracks which have got longer contracts unfortunately spa is not making f1 as much money as it used to and legacy only buys you so much in a sport that's trying to attract new markets you know for for a lot of fans there isn't a deep rooted connection to monza to spa and the you know tracks like silverstone as well and instead they're seeing things like las vegas miami and then those ones are much more popular and although formula was indeed born in europe you've seen a, a shift or a diversification if you will to nearly every continent i think with a desire as well to have even more tracks uh, in the calendar i think there's still a desire as well to have some form of an african grand prix at some point maybe that's going to be the death nail in Uh, the Belgian Grand Prix, if you will, because while it is traditional and one of its own, if you're looking at it compared to the others, you go, well, we've already got plenty of European ones, so that's fine. We need one more in Brazil, though, so there we go. It's it's difficult. Don't forget as well, we've got China coming back next year as well for the first time in five years. That's another one where it will, that will add to the calendar and you'll inevitably probably have, how many American races do we have? Is it three? Maya? Miami, Miami, Austin, Las Vegas, we wouldn't rule out. I mean, that's, what's that? West, East, and South, wouldn't rule out another another race in America at some point. Um, and they want 20, Domenicali wants 25 races. So it's uh, those European heartlands, those races are, uh, the chance of them staying on the calendar, uh, less and less, I'd say. But while the future of the Belgian Grand Prix, Spa is up for renewal, up for questioning, the future of Otmar Safna and the sporting director of Alpine is finalised, shall we say, for a more negative connotation with that one. Uh, Alpine have officially parted company with him and Alan Permain, along with Pat Fry, who's gone to Williams. He was the chief technical officer there. And this is part of a big management shake-up following... The Renault-owned team falling to sixth in the constructors and really failing to adhere to or to achieve the target of finishing fourth for this season, you believe, when we see that Aston Martin and McLaren have done so well and they've failed really to close the gap to the top three, as was their target. So our thoughts on this then. Shall we start with Tristan? Well, 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 well. I'm going to start off with a bizarre quote from Omar Safnau. I don't know if you heard this. Uh, 
he insisted in an interview that you can't get nine women pregnant and hope you have a baby in a month. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what he means to say is, well, I think, well, okay, he's referring to the gestation period of a, of a human baby, which is nine months. And he says, you know, you can't get, if you've got nine women pregnant for a month, that doesn't equate to a baby being born in a month. Um, I mean, I wonder if we left him to his own devices where he would end up with that, you know, <laughs> you leave them for nine, then you end up with nine babies, which is what we wanted in the, start, in the first place. Um, I think what he's he's basically saying is if you left me, you left me in a in the job for not very long and expected a lot out of me and that hasn't happened because you haven't given me long enough to gestate the success of Alpine. Or something along those lines. I'm not sure. But it was it was with, in German, I think. So maybe it makes more sense to our German uh, fans and listeners out there because that's not a quote we have in the UK. Um, I'm. It may well be one. Um, never forget the if my grandma was a bicycle quote. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it's not one I'm familiar with, but I, I kind of I get the sentiment. I feel sorry for him because he's been. It's not his fault, basically, that the people who, who were hired before he arrived at the team are a bit rubbish. And they haven't given him long enough to actually get his teeth in. And Omar has some success. So I I think it is worrying. And what annoyed me was because they finally got rid of Laurent Rossi, who was a, a, a terrible choice for a CEO at Alpine. And so he went... And I thought, brilliant. Now Otmar can really help the team get forward with his excellent knowledge from the rest of the team's been part of. And then what happened? They sacked him as well. So I think Alpine are now in a new competition with Ferrari, not in constructors' standings, because they they seem to both not be doing as well as they should be, but in who can have the most tumultuous time in Formula One. And I I I am unfortunately worried about Alpine's future. I have a funny feeling, you know. Papa Renault is going to turn around and go, yep, that was a branding failure. We're not selling as many Alpine cars as we'd like to. Bear in mind, they haven't released a new Alpine road car for, what, 10 years? And the new electric one doesn't count because that's just a, a Renault in disguise in a, in a funny costume. And so, yeah, they're not selling anything in their Alpines in terms of the road cars. The, the track team's not doing very well either. They're rechanging their structure on the team. So not good signs and... If I'm honest, I think next year they may take a significant step backwards just because very rarely does out of chaos come brilliance. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you make the Ferrari Alpine comparison because I'm guessing you may or may not have heard the rumours that one Mattia Bonotto may be replacing up myself now. Um. I heard the the rumours, but do you believe believe that? Uh, Oh, I mean, with respect to Mattia Bonotto, he is somebody who has better have learnt from his mistakes very, very quickly, or I fear that the situation may get worse for Alpine because, yes, he presided over a big uptick in form in terms of the car, but on, not in terms of form and race results. So, in my view, the Saki of Otmar Safna and of Alan Pomain as well, somebody who's been there for 34 years, and if you're looking at Otmar not very long, is essentially Alpine going, everything's wrong. We're totally bad. We need to go and do everything again from scratch in the middle of a season. I mean, if I were the drivers, I'd be raising a few eyebrows, if you will, because it's not been an amazing start. But you've got to go and look, I think, it's Aston Martin starting off very well. McLaren having a boom and bust type of form. And indeed, their own drivers getting into uh, trouble, if you will, when it comes to double DNFs, be that through faults of themselves, the driver errors, or indeed other issues, really. So, in short, I think it was a very strange decision for them to, to do this, mid-season particularly as well. I find it particularly strange that those two were, were told they were being sacked, and then, and then they were told, right, by the way, you're working this weekend. Can you still do Belgium for us? Um, mm. And they, I mean, obviously very professionally uh, did so. I want to give a shout out to Alan Permain, who's someone who, um, like you said, Tom, has been with the team for 34 years, which is incredible. He's been there from when they were Benetton. So he worked with Michael Schumacher on his first two titles. Uh, then when they rebranded to Renault in the early 2000s, he worked with Alonso on those two titles and then rebranded to Lotus and then to Renault and then to Alpine. Um, is it, what, what does it say that my abiding memory of uh, 
of him will be the fact that uh, it was the I think it was 2013 when uh, there was a team order for him to Kimi Raikkonen to move out of the way for Roman Grosjean and uh, and Alan Permain who you never hear on the radio uh, and there was because uh, they had uh, another car right up behind them trying to take third place and Alan Permain comes on the radio and says Kimi get out of the effing way to which Kimi to which Raikkonen responds don't shout f in the corner there. So uh, that's, that's my abiding memory of, uh, of Alan Pemain. But also, yeah, Otmar Safnau, who only was just really getting started at Alpine, and all of a sudden he's gone. I wonder if he'll... Um, he does like to be the team principal of Formula 1 teams beginning with A. So I wonder where he'll end up next. We'll have to see. My final point I'll make is, is it just me? Or I, I, could, I, could, honestly, I could honestly put my hat on the fact that I'm convinced Alpine keep replacing people I've never heard of with people I've never heard of. So, <laughs> so, so when the, cause usually with, with formula one, we've said this before, you get like a revolving door of team principles. So you had like, and you get personnel, go, sometimes you get new personnel, go to different teams like James, James Vowles going to Williams or, uh, Laurent Mekis from Ferrari going to Alpha Tauri at the end of this year. But, they keep replacing like at the start of twenty twenty two they brought in Lauren Rossi and Luca de Luca de Mayo, who, um, mm-hmm. and then they replaced and then they've now replaced uh, Safnauer and Permain with Bruno Faman and Philippe Creef. Like I'm sorry, I just I I don't know who. So Bruno Faman is now the team principal. So he was in the uh, he was in the press conference on Friday instead of Safnauer, and they've also got Julian Ruse, who's now the uh, interim sporting director. So they're going to uh, presumably bring in someone else after that. So I think that I'll leave I'll leave the last bit of my little spiel to Alan Prost, who uh, has been involved with the Renault and Alpine team in various roles over the years, like an advisor. Um, he said that uh, this week it saddened and distressed him the, the way the way that Alpine was going, and that it was basically. It's a, it's a classic thing how a big corporation looks at F1 and goes, you know what, we'll just we'll we'll run this uh, with uh, just just businessmen who don't know anything about F1 who can just run the team because they know the brand. And once again, it's proving arguably that that is not the best way to lead a Formula One team. And Alpine is showing us a very good a very good way of how how not to do it. It just seems that they have their annual psychodrama, don't they? First of all, it was Cyril Abitable and Daniel Ricciardo, the bromance that wasn't, that turned into you know dislike between the two, allegedly. You then have Alonso leaving and Piastri, you now have, oh, you know, Carl Waters coming along, here's Gasly and Ocon. Nope, we're getting rid of literally everybody with any power in the team mid-season, and that's going to work, so... I agree. I mean, it's a bold ambition for them to go, right, we're going to be up there with the top three. But when you're seeing McLaren and Aston Martin doing it, albeit in patches, but doing it nonetheless, it is remarkable to think that they think, oh, well, you know what we need? More chaos right now. Stability. Stability Mm. is the enemy. That's what it is. (laughs) The enemy. (laughs) That's exactly. It's funny when you compare that to someone like Mercedes, right, where... Toto Wolf has seems to have been there for forever, or Christian Horner, who's been in in Red Bull forever, and you know there is a if you look at those two teams and you think, well, what do they have in common? And they actually have some stability in management and and I guess coherency, and and that's kind of what we need to see from the other teams, and that's what I think is part of the reason why the teams that don't do very well and start slipping backwards begin slipping backwards let's look at Williams when they were have, turning over people like crazy drivers and also engineers and even though we had Claire Williams at the at the head basically she was the only level of consistency everything underneath her was moving mm-hmm. and what what you kind of need to see is a team that starts to know how to work together and that's now what I think Alpine, or maybe if they hope, maybe they'll go back to Renault. I don't know. Um, need to get under their belts as well. And I don't know. Maybe it's good, Angus, that we've got people you've never heard of, because apparently the people you have heard of can't get the team up to up to speed. <laughs> 
Now, it wouldn't be an episode of F1 in Review without us questioning, at least in small part, the decision-making of the FAA and decision-makers here when it comes to the rules of Formula 1 now. You had Hamilton being given a five-second penalty in the sprint for tapping into Perez and ultimately ending his race. Fast forward to Sunday, you've got Carlos Sainz tangling with Piastri in Turn 1 after locking up and was given nothing. No penalty at all. Now, that Ferrari was given terminal damage and eventually retired, but I'm wondering to myself, why was Hamilton given a penalty almost immediately, yet Sainz wasn't, because it was a while before he retired? Am I being harsh, what do you reckon? No, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think the differences are racing instant on the first lap with unfortunateness, and... Hamilton's impact was basically due to understeering from Hamilton. Now, I think what it's very difficult to to give a penalty on the opening lap because everyone's trying to go through a very narrow area, and I think that's what was happening. Weirdly, Carlos Sainz tweeted out um, that Oscar Piastri was over ambitious, and it was basically all his fault, and that's just absolute nonsense. Because what actually happened with the turn one incident was. Carlos Sainz was was actually much more on the left. He locked up, which means it compromised him because he 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 was about to impact everyone else, and then he had to then go for the small gap which he originally was leaving open, which Piastri saw was open, was going for it. So therefore, that's the that's the result that we had a collision there because Sainz made a mistake and locked up, and Piastri was over ambitious. That's two equal issues leading to an unfortunate incident. Both are to blame. When you look at the Perez versus Hamilton incident, Perez is minding his own business to all intents and purposes ahead of Hamilton. Hamilton goes for a move, understeers and collides into him. Perez is on the outside of the track by the runoff area, giving Hamilton plenty of time and distance to get past him. It was Hamilton's mistake that caused the collision. And so I think that's why we ended up with a penalty in one case, but not the other. If you left Hamilton behind Perez there wouldn't have been any any problems. If Sainz hadn't locked up, Piastri probably would have made it through the gap. If Pe- Piastri hadn't gone through the gap, Sainz's lock-up wouldn't have caused a collision. So when you look at the factors that led to the overall problem, I think one was deserved of a penalty and the other one wasn't. And I think the penalty given to Hamilton seems very, very harsh because it's a sprint race and therefore five seconds is quite impactful relative to the distances and times between the drivers so five seconds caused Hamilton to go backwards quite a lot in comparison to the race but that's basically it that's all they can give them that's the lowest time penalty the lenient time penalty that we can give a driver for what is a pretty minor accident and anyway it caused a hole in his side pod and caused him to retire from the race so yeah I think it was pretty fair I don't think Hamilton's penalty was fair. I have to disagree, to be honest. I think that mm-hmm. that one was was just racing, which ended up with a light tap into the side pod. Admittedly, yes, caused a fair amount of damage, having seen the images, but it wasn't Hamilton's fault that Perez's car was damaged that much, I would say. Um, and even if you don't subscribe to that point of view, I think the inconsistency is the main thing. The fact that... Yeah. Um, I don't think I think the science piastri one is is tough is tough to call because I can see what science is saying when he's like well it was my corner and piastri shouldn't have dived up the inside and the point about inexperience um science saying well he's clearly that will come with experience he'll learn not to dive in like that whilst a little bit sort of un, a bit of an underhand comment I can see see where he's coming from and then from piastri's side him saying well why is he turned in as if I'm not there Again, I can I can see what's what's going on there and why he, why he said that, but and I can see why it's a, it's a tricky one to call. But like, there has to be some sort of consistency. Like, surely, just like a penalty for both. And I get it's tricky to be absolutely consistent because such is the nature of human life. But I at least think there could have been more discretion on uh, on those penalties. I don't think it was the. The most the most thought out decisions in the world, if I'm honest. I think that uh, Hamilton can consider, consider himself unlucky, to be honest with you, based on uh, what penalties are usually handed out for. It reminded me a bit of the um, was it in Spain when you had was it Sonoda and mm. Joe? 
Do you remember? Uh, yes. And they, they, they went to, they went to turn one, and um, there was a light tap, and Joe went to the runoff area, and Sonoda was given a five second penalty. It reminded me of that sort of one where. You know, it's a little bit harsh. Like, come on, like, sort of like, allow a bit of discretion. Mm-hmm. It almost seemed to me that when they gave this penalty, they were thinking to themselves initially, "Oh, racing incident, not intentional. It's a small piece of damage." And they saw the dramatic sort of fall away that was Perez, and they thought, oh, "Bloody, better go and do something." Um, ooh, ten's a bit harsh. Five, five seconds. Yeah, nice one, hmm. nice one. Because when you compare that with the race, it was no, no. We've noted it. That's absolutely fine. He's going off anyway. Phew, he's retiring. That's nice. Um, it just seemed very much more react, sort of more reactive in nature than planned out and I suppose yeah, thought through. Really, that may be harsh, but that's just how it appeared to me at least. I don't. I, I was it Perez's fault that Hamilton collided hit with him and took him out of the race. I don't think it was anyone's fault, really. I think that was just close racing and it got a bit too close with unintended and, you know, small consequences. But it wasn't. It didn't have to be close racing. This is the bit that irks me about this particular incident. Hamilton drifted out from the inside line to the outside line where Perez was and then collided with him. Interesting. I saw that more as a snap of oversteer than an intentional drift into. Well, it doesn't matter whether or not he intentionally drifted into him. He did understeer him into Perez. He had to correct out of it because he was carrying slightly too much speed. He didn't have the adequate grip. So this is the thing. This is what like, I, I. This is why I think it's it's fine as a penalty. Hamilton caused a collision that left a retiree, and I think that should be penalised. If let's say Hamilton was drifting out right, and uh, because he'd had that snap. And Perez had had a snap as well and had to then go in to the inside line and they came together. I don't think there would have been a penalty because they have both created the incident. But when there is one person creating the incident, then I think you get a penalty. And actually, to say it's not consistent ignores Silverstone in 2021 when a very similar thing happened to Hamilton versus Verstappen and Hamilton clipped Verstappen and Verstappen went into the barriers and Hamilton got a more severe penalty because it led to retire uh, you know a retire out of the race and a crash it's the, basically the same incident over again except instead of having a 10 second penalty Hamilton got five so what would make that a racing incident for for yourself because it seems that me and Angus see it as such but you not so much well it's it's not a racing incident because firstly it I think basically you can discount all collisions on the first lap because that that when the pack is so tight tightly compacted together you, you have no time to react and you get these weird collisions so firstly it's not on the first lap but hang on Grosjean got banned for multiple races after a crash on turn one <laughs> yeah. at Belgium yeah but that, let's face it Grosjean Grosjean sort of uh took that to the nth degree but we can discount okay, yep. that doesn't matter because I I, I think we're, we're talk as we're talking about this particular one what I was saying is it's not on the first lap, so there is no pressure from a pack around you. So it was an isolated incident between two drivers that are away from all other drivers. So there wasn't that pressure. Secondly, it's coming from the person doing the overtaking. So which means they are immediately being scrutinized for things like track limits, whether or not they are um, you know, going to be in DRS zones. There is a lot of focus on them. And the person behind can't overtake another driver in a way that compromises them because they aren't allowed to take the racing lines until they are significantly alongside or ahead so the fact that Hamilton wasn't significantly alongside or ahead of Perez meant that he immediately was at the disadvantage now Hamilton by carrying more speed into the corner knew that he could overtake him but in doing so, runs the risk of compromising the car because you run out of mechanical grip and you run out of aero grip. And that's exactly what happened. Hamilton carried too much speed in, found himself compromised, is in the negative position, is behind Perez, hits him, causes him to retire. I don't... that, that you, if, if, When we talk about torpedoes, right, it, that's basically a torpedo. It's a more gentle torpedo. It was unfortunate, yeah, but... The fact, I think, that that tips it over the edge was the fact that Perez had to retire. And I think that's the straw that broke the camel's back. 
if it didn't punch a hole into Perez's side, I think he may have gotten away with it. But it's the fact that he did compromise someone else's race when he didn't have to. And I think that's the thing that we're scrutinising here. But you'll admit it was a close drawn thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, good. But the, I think that's the <laughs> that's the thing that that's the the end result, right? Mm. When, when, let's imagine it's it's basically a racing incident until the point which Hamilton broke Perez's car and caused him to retire. And I think that's the precedent that the FIA are setting here. It's not that you can't, you know, get your elbows out. It's you just can't punch the other driver's wing or or side pod out, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But isn't that what happened between Sainz and Piastri? Yeah, but in that example, if you remember, Piastri went for a gap that was going to close up because of Sainz lockup. Mm-hmm. So they were both equally at fault. I see. Well, so that makes sense. one influences the other, mm-hmm. whereas Hamilton only influenced Perez, if that's a nicer way to mm-hmm. explain it. I can see defeat. I see where you're coming from. I don't know. I don't think there is. I don't think there is a right answer because apparently the whole of the F1 community is talking about this. And I think it's going to be one of those occasions where it was so close that half of, of one group of individuals will say, that was a terrible decision and the other half will say that was fair enough and I don't think we'll ever win and I think we'll keep being inconsistent because when you do things on a toss of a coin like that it will always go between directions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well that's what the sport's all about isn't it yeah let's bring back Michael Massey he always, he always is a, a, car, a calm <laughs> head who can make those decisions with uh, an immense amount of clarity oh dear. in his defence he nearly almost always did Right. There's, there's only like one occasion where yeah. he kind of messed up. Well, quite a big one. <laughs> and on that happier note, that seems that's all we've got time for in terms of episode 23 of F1 and Review 2023. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end of this one, be that on your preferred podcast provider or indeed elsewhere. A reminder, as always, you can follow us on TikTok and Twitter if you want to, your handle being F1 in Review. And we are going to go and take our own little summer's break for one week only. Uh, we'll be returning then on August the 16th or the week commencing the 14th. We'll record on the Tuesday and then go out on the Wednesday if you really care about the uh, smaller details. And we'll, of course, then be back after that to return when it comes to Formula 1 topics, the races and everything in between. So thank you very much for listening. We'll be back on the 16th of August. Thank you.